From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. to another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. I'm Jenny Curtis, and I am so delighted to have our returning guest co-host, Dana Gurrier, back with us. Welcome back, Dana. Thank you, my dear. It is always, always a pleasure, and I will come back anytime you invite me, so I'm always happy to be here. Today's guest has done so much. It would probably take us the whole episode just to list his credits, but he's best known for his acting work on The Wire, Amazon's Bosch, and Comedy Central's Corporate. So we're going to dig into all of that and so much more. I am thrilled to welcome Lance Reddick. Lance, thank you for joining us. We are so happy to have you here today. Thank you. I absolutely love talking about the creative connections in the world, so I really want to start with this because Dana and Lance, you both have actually shared projects together, even though you've never met. So Dana was in American Horror Story Coven, and she was in The Domestics, as were you, Lance. And I would love to start with those projects. Wow. Um, my experience was so vivid on American Horror Story because it was the, I don't want to say the only time, but it's one of the few times in my career where I feel like I almost went back to school. Because my first day was a three-page scene with Jessica Lange. And it was really interesting because whenever you work with a star like that, well, at least for myself, I always kind of wonder what I'm going to get. So I'm, I'm a little concerned about protecting my work. <laughs> and two things. First of all, I realized very quickly that she's just all about the work, so I didn't have to worry about that. But the other thing was that it was the last scene of the day, and that particular season was her season more than any other season. So she was fried. <laughs> mm. So we start the scene, and I remember she's kind of doing this ritual and she's kind of mumbling to herself. And I character Papa Legba, he is his spirit. He appears halfway through her incantation. And so she's in the middle of this incantation. And you hear in the next room, somebody drops something. Cut, cut, cut. She starts over again. I swear to God, about 30 seconds in, we hear, bang, somebody drops something else. And, you know, the room is quiet. And you hear Jessica almost in a whisper. Jesus Christ, when are they going to learn how to lock down a fucking set? And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to mess up this place, man. Oh, my goodness. But then it was great. I mean, it was great. And the other thing that was interesting, because I'm such a stickler about being prepared and knowing my lines, when you've got that much to do and you're working hours that long, you've got a three-page scene, sometimes you're going to go up in your lines. And the thing that I don't remember ever seeing before was that when she went up on her lines she would just keep going. What was amazing to me about it was that her going up in her lines never took her out of it. Like she still stayed in it as the character. And the other thing was, you know, being a theater actor, even though you're always looking for something spontaneous on every take, once you find it, you're still pretty much trying to do the same thing. And I noticed that she was finding a little thing because in some ways she's more quintessentially a film actor than anything else. And I noticed how nuanced and different every single take was. It was really fascinating to watch. It was really an education. And then, of course, Kathy Bates is one of my idols. So that day was just nerve wracking. <laughs> and the same thing with Angela Best. I also had a similar Jessica Lang experience. She was so wonderful and kind and humble to me, and she was so sweet. 
But I saw her rip someone a new one that was just not on point and they needed to be. And they were after that. And I just remember, wow, that's a boss lady. Wow. wow, It was like watching a queen on her throne, you know? Yeah. And then there's also a fantastic grace and attitude that she had, which was just about the work. Yeah. She was just about executing what she needed to be done. That's literally one of the highlights of my career thus far is getting to work with her and and Angela, obviously. Also, Gabby Sidibe, that's how... That's where she and I met, and that's where we forged our friendship, and we're still dear friends to this day. She's something else. What an intellect, too. Gabby's like, people don't realize it, or they realize it when they meet her within a few minutes, but she's, I told her just the other night, and I said, I don't think you, have you been tested, girl? You might be a little genius. And she was like, mm. I don't know. I was like, easily. Yeah, you are. <laughs> so we, we chuckled about that. You know, she's like, I'm just me, girl. And I'm like, you're also a genius. So that's fine. Yeah. You know, but um, that time was wonderful in American Heart Story. And I do remember your role quite prominently because weird stuff started happening and your character ushered in a sort of spirit realm that was just really freaky. And, you know, I'm from New Orleans, so we don't play with any of that stuff. Oh, Wow. Also, the local folks that they had hired to come in and do the ritual practices with us, they made us pray with them prior to, at least in the scenes that I was in and some of the episodes that I had done. And I really appreciated that they asked us to humbly bow our heads and respect what was being done because it's not a game. It's not just for Hollywood film and television. It's like a real thing to them. So we had to kind of pay homage and reverence, which I really appreciated because you don't want to make nobody mad. Oh man, that is so cool. (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, it was with um, Sarah Paulson. There was a goat that had to be sacrificed all over her. And it was very messy and very grotesque and everything, but she was like a champ. And she is. She's amazing. And that's my girl. She's so amazing. I love Sarah. I didn't work with her in that season, but they had me come back for a cameo a couple seasons later, and I, I did work with that. I want to go back really quick to working across Jessica Lang. You guys both strike me as you're about the work. And so being across from someone at that level of her career who also is all about the work, does it affect the way you approach your own work or is it kind of matching the energy you already have? I'm going to jump in really quick, Lance, because I'm not on Lance's level at all. Like, And that's not to impugn my level. I consider myself a blue-collar actor, so when I'm considered a local hire, or or at least I was because now I'm based in Los Angeles, before when I was working in New Orleans in a, a local hire, people did treat you a different way, and you knew you were a supporting character. And so you kind of understood the hierarchy of set life, if you will. Even still, I always watched what the greats were doing. I always take cues from them and I let them sort of dictate the temperature and the culture of the set. And if they're talkative and they're open, great. If not, I just kind of follow their lead. So Lance, does that then affect you the way you approach your own work or is your method kind of set and some people fit better than others into your method of acting? better than others. That's interesting way to put it. I don't change my preparation based on who I'm working with. It's weird to say, but I mean, in terms of how I see myself as an actor, I mean, pretty much from the time I got out of drama school, I just always thought of myself as a great actor. So in terms of the work, that never bothered me. So when I work with people, I may be nervous to meet the person, <laughs> but once the camera starts rolling, it's just, it's just about locking in and doing the work. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes I may get rough. I mean, perfect example is with Kathy Bates. Because, like I said, she's one of my idols. I mean, when I got to drama school, it was like Meryl Streep, Marlon Brando, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Kathy Bates. So when I met her, it was like, and the scene that I had with her, 
I got there on a Sunday. My first scene was on a Monday. I think it was the second episode that I did. And somebody said to me something about this scene that I had with Angela and Kathy. And I said, what scene with Angela and Kathy? He said, oh, yeah, we can shoot it tomorrow. Oh, they're still writing. I said, what? So, oh, my God. So it ended up being this three-page scene. I don't know if it was the last scene or like the penultimate scene, but it's where, I mean, it's hard to remember, but I think Kathy's dead and she's in hell and she ends up having to be tortured by Angela's character. So I get the scene in the afternoon and I'm trying to look at it in between setups. Oh my gosh. And they did the script on red paper with black ink so that it would be hard to copy because they were so anal about secrecy. Oh, that's right. Well, I was wearing red contacts trying to read stuff on red paper in the dark because it was getting dark by the t- you know what I mean? For a scene that was the next day, that was a three-page scene with me and Angela Bassett and Kathy Bates. And so I wrapped, went home, studied, took a nap, studied, took a nap, and I was up and down all night doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we got to set that evening, we kind of stumbled through the scene because we were all kind of learning the scene. But the thing about it is I had to work in the morning and they didn't. <laughs> so we kind of stumbled through the master then the, I remember the director said, who wants to go first with close-ups? <laughs> it was so funny because me and Angela both did this. <laughs> and, and Kathy looked at us and she said, fuck it, I'll go first. And the thing about the scene was that Kathy had like a two-page monologue before my character enters. So they shot that first. You know, I'm in my chair trying to learn my lines and I'm watching the crew go by. And after every one of her takes, the crew are just like shaking their head going, wow. So then I'm thinking... I mean, I can't afford to get distracted. I can't afford to get distracted, but it's Kathy Bates. I gotta see what she's doing. So I went over to one of the monitors in Vito Village and I'm watching her do her thing. It's Kathy Bates. So she was breathtaking. She was stunning. My heart kind of dropped into my stomach because I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so screwed. I'm so fucking screwed. And then it was like, no, 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 just keep, just keep focused, just keep focused, just keep back and keep running lines, keep running lines. So finally, they finished that part of the scene and they're changing the setup. So the three of us are running lines. The first time we go to run the lines, get to my lines, and I'm in my little method thing trying to find the character. And Kathy says, what, what? Speak up, I can't hear you. I'm like, oh, oh. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I raise my voice. <laughs> and then at one point, one of the PA says, Ms. Bates is ready for you. She said, well, hold on, we still, we've learned, we've got to learn these lines. So we run some more, and then the PA interrupts again, and Kathy yells, come and talk, come and talk. I'm like, oh, even though I think she didn't even say it right, but <laughs> in French. But anyway, I'm thinking, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. So we set up for Kathy's close-up, and I enter. And I have like a paragraph, and in the middle of a sentence, I just went up. And all I'm thinking is, oh, my God, I'm going up on Kathy Bates' close-up. I'm going up on Kathy Bates' close-up. And to this day, I don't know how I did it. I just kept talking until I got through it, and it was fine. And the funny thing about it is when it came to my close-up, we ran out of time, so we had to go through another day. So I had to leave and come back, and then by the end, it was fine. But that was quite an experience. That's incredible. Don't you love hearing stuff like that, Jenny, like these seasoned, outstanding, incredible actors like – Oh shit, it went up on my line. Like there's something so magical for us hearing that from someone who has so many credits that you have, who's such a consummate professional. Like 
it's to me inspiring. And it reminds you like, no, we're all human beings. Calm down. You'll get the work done. Relax. Everybody in some way feels this way. Even Kathy Bates herself, probably. <laughs> She's funny too. This is another funny story about Kathy because as a personality, she is diametrically opposed. She's 180 degrees from Jessica. She's just loud and forceful. So, you know, we're walking back to the trailers after we finished the scene. And she said, so how you like it? You having a good time? And I said, yeah, it's great. She said, yeah, because you never know what fucking TV, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. Yeah. You yeah. never know. Yeah. Everybody's winging it a little bit, you know? I want to jump on to the fact that you said you always knew you were a great actor, which you are. But I read that you applied to Yale School of Drama on a lark. Is there a story there? Yeah, there is. So, I mean, my whole journey as an actor is kind of weird because I didn't grow up thinking I'd be doing this. If there was a thing that was my thing growing up, it was music. I did a play in high school my senior year. I was in Fiorello. I played like the dealer in the card game, so I think I had one line. It's the only thing I ever did just for fun. So I decided I was going to pursue it in college. So I did productions in college for fun. I went to music school, Eastman School of Music. My first year actually was at the University of Rochester and I transferred, but I'd go over the campus and do a play once a year. And so I dropped out of music school because I realized that I didn't want to be a classical composer. I wanted to be a rock star. I got married straight out of school. And about a year after my daughter was born, I had a back injury. And at the time, I was waiting tables and I was delivering newspapers and I was delivering pizzas. So I was always working on adrenaline. And so I just started thinking, man, I need to reevaluate my approach. I need to do something different or, you know, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. So my brilliant thinking, I'll be an actor. <laughs> it's way more stable of a career. That'll help my music career. It wasn't even about I wanted to be an actor. It was like, what can I do to have my music career? I'll act. Right. I was living in Boston at the time. And so I started going on local theater auditions and just getting cast and getting cast and getting cast. And one of the things that I did, my go-to fallback job was working as an artist model because there are just so many schools and so many art schools in Boston. And one of the places I modeled at was this place called the Museum School. And there was a guy who liked me from the beginning. And I modeled for a lot of his drawing classes. His name was Lou Gepetti. And about a year into that, he started painting me privately. He had this huge studio in his warehouse down by the railroad tracks. And uh, I would go there. And I would just sit for three hours. I was wearing these green khaki pants and this football jersey from high school that I had. I would sit in a chair. He would paint me for three hours at a time. And we would just talk. And one day we got into the subject of training as an actor. And in my infinite arrogance, I said, oh, you don't need to train. You just learn as you go. Even though I knew that that was kind of bullshit because I was starting to realize that the bigger the roles, the more trouble I was having because I didn't have any technique. The script was bad or the director was bad. I was lost. And I just want to go to New York to study the actor's studio. The only place I'd even consider is Yale. And I couldn't get into Yale because I never finished my bachelor's degree. And the only reason I said that bullshit was because of Meryl Streep. That's the only thing I know. I just knew Meryl Streep was there. And then he says to me, well you might want to consider it because I had my master's in painting from Yale and I don't have a bachelor's degree because I went to a diploma school. So I said, oh, and to this day, I don't know why that stuck in my head or what possessed me, but I ended up calling up information for the drama school and calling up the admissions office and asking them. They said, oh yeah, you can apply as a certificate student. And if you get in, you can just go through this program with everybody else's certificate student. You'll get a certificate instead of a diploma at the end. And if you ever finish your bachelor's degree, all you have to do is send us proof that you uh, have your bachelor's and will convert it to a master's. So really, it was like my fallback plan. I applied and then I got in. And then I was like, oh, shit, what do I do now? <laughs> my wife at the time, when I applied, she thought it was crazy. But then when I got in, she was like, you got to go. Absolutely. And every actor I talked to said the same thing. The only people who said I shouldn't was a casting director. 
<laughs> just go to LA and make movies. Yeah, because that's how that works. You can't turn Yale down. Yeah. So at 29 years old with a three-year-old married, I went to Yale drama school and it changed my life. Do you have a favorite speech warm-up? A favorite speech warm-up? No. I have a vocal warm-up that I do. What's the vocal warm-up that you do? Well, it's not like I can do it because it's a graduate thing. Like, I literally, I just start with a tone. Uh, and I go as long as I can do it. And I'll keep going up and up and up, and then I'll do that for five minutes. And then I'll take a song, and I'll put it on that's usually like maybe four minutes, and I'll make sure it's something that, that makes me stretch my range. And then I'll sing that so I open up my chest so that on the one hand, it, it keeps my voice grounded, but on the other hand, it forces me to put it forward as well so it's in my mask. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because yeah. one of the things I discovered... The further along my career I got, I started getting into the habit and I started realizing it on fringe of not being on my voice. Part of the reason I realized it was because John Noble's voice is so deep and resonant. And there would be days when I would be on my voice and there were days when I wouldn't be on it. I wouldn't know why. And I realized I need to start vocalizing every day. I need to go back to basics. So that's something I did. A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com slash a moment of your time. So your first role in TV was a Dick Wolf show, right? New York Undercover. Is that correct? That was your first role in TV? Well, actually, no. (laughs) Oh. That was my first role after I graduated from Yale. But believe it or not, I had a day player role as a local hire when I was living in Boston on one of Fox's first dramatic shows ever. It was called, man, I hate saying, because this is telling you how old I am. This is back in 1990, and it was Mm -hmm. called against the law and it was starring michael o'keefe and the guest star was keith david so michael o'keefe is this attorney who's in his big law firm and decides he wants to like work for the people so he opens up his own law firm and it was a flashback scene because keith david was on death row a cop went to arrest him and he got afraid so he resisted and then they showed for the gun and i think it was mistaken identity and he ended up shooting the cop by accident so he ended up being convicted for murder. And so I played a Michael O'Keefe's co-counsel in the original trial in the flashback sequence. So that's actually my first credit. But New York Undercover was my first credit after Yale. It's probably the first one on my MDB. Either way, I'd love to hear about what emotionally a first day professionally on set is compared to where you are now, how things have changed. That happened two years after I graduated. So, you know, my first job out of school, I was understudying on Broadway. So I did that for the first six months after school. And then almost immediately, I got cast in Off-Broadway play at Manhattan Theater Club that then later moved Off-Broadway to another theater and ran for a year. I'd just been doing theater straight for like five years. So I get on set, immediately I'm going to go into my theater thing and my Brando thing. And I remember the first scene that I shot was the first scene that I had in the show. 
it's when Malik Yoba and Lauren, I can't remember their the characters' names, they come to tell me that my son's been killed. In rehearsal, there were two things that happened. Number one, we rehearsed it a couple times, and the script supervisor said, oh, in the last rehearsal, you did such and such and such, and you did something different. So what are you going to do? I said, well, I don't know. I mean, it depends on, you know. And she said, oh, oh but, it, but it has to match. I said, well, what do you mean it has to match? <laughs> she said, so for editing, you know, once you, once you do a behavior, you have to do it the same every time. So that, I'm like, what? Oh, my God. That's, that's ridiculous. And the other thing was, I had all the lines. Malik and Alar basically had two lines each. So we go to read the scene, and Malik says, Mr. I can't remember what my name was, but Mr. So-and-so, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Can I see the signs? What's the line? Oh. And I was like, he doesn't know his lines? What's going on? He's, a, he's one of the leads in the show. He doesn't know his lines? What the hell is going on? What is that? <laughs> so I was like, you have to do the same thing every take? And he leads in the show don't know the lines? Man, what is this TV thing? This is ridiculous. So that, that was my, <laughs> so that was my kind of naive, self-important theater attitude my first day on set. Following that throughout your career, have you found there are some sets that are way stricter on staying word perfect on the script and sets that aren't so much? Well, you know, coming from the theater as opposed to sketch comedy, I've always been kind of the words matter. Mm -hmm. As I've gotten older with film and television, I'm a little less strict about that. Although by the time I actually shoot something, I want the words to be set. I don't want to be ad-libbing while I'm shooting. You know, it's interesting because on The Wire, I found... After doing that show for five seasons, I didn't even realize that I'd gotten into the habit of changing lines if I found that it just came out better. Mm. It got to the point where I didn't even check it. And I remember it was, I think it was the last season, David had written that particular episode and there was always a writer on set, usually whoever wrote the episode, but not always. And David Simon, he said to me, oh, no, Lance, the line is, I said, oh, yeah, but it just, it just doesn't feel as natural. He said, yeah, but you have to say it this way because, and, he had, and it's had something to do with the nature of what I was saying and the legality and what it meant in cop speak. So I had to say it the right way. But the first time that I actually experienced kind of script police in word perfect, which I thought was kind of ridiculous, was Fringe. You know, I went from the wire to Fringe. So, you know, I'd go from shooting on location with the showrunner, the creator of the show, or the person who wrote the, the episode there all the time. We're shooting the first season of Fringe in New York. The writer's room is Los Angeles. I change something in a sense so it comes out better. I get a note, oh, that's not what it says. I said, yeah, but it comes out better if I just change the wording of the sentence. It wasn't even like I wanted to change the meaning. I just wanted to change the wording of a sentence. And it was one sentence. He said, well, you got to call LA because these people, they know what they're doing. Like, what? I mean, oh, come on, really? This was my, my first day, not, not the pilot, but the first day shooting after we went into production. So yeah, that kind of sucked. It was also the difference between cable and network television. I remember there was a scene, and this situation was a clusterfuck anyway, because it was a reshoot of a scene that Anna hated in the first place. And an insult to injury, I had flown to Los Angeles for some kind of publicity thing for Fox. So I was supposed to catch a flight that morning to go to set. And I set my alarm for PM instead of AM by accident. So I missed oh, my no. flight. So I wake up to my phone ringing and people saying, Lance, where are you? I said, what? I'm in bed. They went, what? You're supposed to be on set. I said, what? I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> I'm rushing the airport. And also, the lines have been changed. So I'm learning the new lines on the plane. I don't even remember how many hours late I am. And then we go to set to do this reshoot, this reshoot the scene. Oh, we read through the scene. 
We go to shoot the scene after the first take, and Anna's apoplectic by now because she hates the scene anyway. And the script supervisor says, that's the wrong line. It's been changed. I said, you know, at this point, I'm just going to say the line that I've been saying. I'm just going to do that. So we shot the scene. That evening, I get a call from Joe Wyman, the showrunner. I said, hey, Joe, what's up? He said, I heard you were in the scene today, and you didn't want to say a line. I said, well... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, the line they wanted to change didn't make it better, and it was throwing me, and it was already a mess because Anna was upset throughout the whole scene because she didn't want to do the scene. So he said, well, you know, you need to check if you want to change your line from now. I said, really? He said, yeah, well, the problem is the line was, we've lost the battle, but we're going to win the war. He said, the network wants us to try to avoid using the word war right now because it has something to do with politics. Oh, wow. And I'm like, the storyline is that our universe is at war with another universe. Are you fucking kidding me? Excuse me. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I'm like, and now every time I want to change a word, I got to call and wait for an answer from Los Angeles. This is absurd. And then like a couple days later, there was a memo that went out to all the cast about not changing lines without calling Los Angeles. Oh, I was like, wow. oh, oh boy, okay. No. We are a network. Television. That's what it is. Is there a different approach from cable to network in how you create a character because the format is so different? Well, sometimes the work is frustrating because a lot of times your preparation ends up getting thrown out the window on set. So that's hard, particularly when scripts change so much day to day. That was really frustrating on network where that didn't happen very often with The Wire. Or if it did happen, it started happening more toward the end of the season, <laughs> but not so much at the beginning of the season. And it was a shorter season. It was half as long. But in terms of the preparation, I mean, you prepare, you prepare. Now, do you mean preparing like for a scene or do you mean like creating the character? I think I mean creating the character. No, because, you know, it's all the same work. You know, you try to figure out as much as you can about who the person is. And that doesn't change just because you're doing network or at least not for me. You can do all the preparation in the world, but you can show up to a set and a auteur, a director may say, that's not how I envisioned her. And you have to, on a dime, recalibrate and reassess. Oh, man, that's tough. That's tough. That's like a real acting exercise. That's like a real challenge, I think, as an artist, when you've done months of preparation and you get there and it's like, no, that's not quite it, even after you've had rehearsals. It's like, we changed our mind. It's just this other thing now. And you have to, like, in three seconds, like, make a decision, find a word, dig deep, lean on your training and find a way to create a whole new character in three seconds. And, and that's absolutely happened. And it's so funny too, Lance may not feel the way, but I do feel like there is a difference sometimes between creating a character. And of course you go at the work the same way, but the feel I feel with like, say an HBO series versus like Lance was talking about network series, there is a different temperature. There is a different vibe, a whole different culture on the set, a whole different like energy. But he's right in the sense that you, you're bringing what you're bringing no matter what. They're going to take it and cut it and edit it the way that they do to make it fit into their mold of their television show. The war comment was also interesting to me because everything is like, for better or worse, it's like politics and who's going to sponsor and marketing. Everything has to be considered, you know? Yeah, well, that war comment, it, it has some, I don't remember what it was, you know, because this was 10 years ago, but it had something to do with Iraq and Afghanistan. I want to really quick jump back to The Wire because after auditioning for a couple roles, you were auditioning for Daniels and you didn't get the third page of your audition sides. Yes. So you had to prep your monologue in two minutes outside and then go back in yeah. and nail it. Do you think there's a freedom to that when you actually don't have the time to prepare? Does it bring something different to the character? It brings something different to me. <laughs> One thing that's kind of funny about that is that 
And it's something that I had been discovering in the course of auditioning for television, that if I had a week, I'd be great. Or if I had it the day before, I'd be great. Because there was something psychological about knowing it was an even playing field. If I had two days, it was never enough time. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds crazy. So having to cold read that monologue, there's just a part of you that just says, fuck it, let me just you know, do what I can do. Do you know what I mean? I don't know how to describe it, but there's a part of you that just says, it's not even worth being nervous. The only thing that matters is being focused. That's right. So find what you can find, figure out the marks, and just make sure you hit those marks. Obviously, you booked the part, so you did it well. But do you remember what the feeling was while you were doing that monologue? I felt transparent. In other words, I was just in it. Do you know what I mean? It was one of those things where, because it required so much of my focus, I didn't let my brain have any room to wonder about how it was doing or what the casting director was thinking. And then speaking about not having a ton of time, I know for John Wick, you had a week to basically perfect your African accent and you had to pick between South African and Kenyan. So here's what happened. So when I got the offer, which was like the week before, <laughs> you know, I read it and for some reason, I didn't notice it when I read it, that in the stage directions, it said with an African accent. And looking at the role again, I said, oh my gosh, this is African accent. So I called my agent. I said, you know, I'm not sure. You know, it says African accent. And so they checked. And then they came back to me and said, you don't have to do an African accent. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa no, no, no. I think that could be cool. I think I want to try. So I had tapes of the South African accent. You know, it's funny how you never know how your preparation is going to pay off. I did a movie in 1998 called I Dreamed of Africa that was set in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And I was cast without reading a script. So part of my preparation, I called up the embassy in Kenya and I found a guy who he agreed to talk to me. So I interviewed him and I taped his accent. And then once I got the script, I realized that all my lines, the few that I had were in Swahili. So being able to do a Kenyan accent, speaking English with a Kenyan accent was not a thing, but I had it. So I tried the South African accent. And it just didn't seem to fit the character. So then I just picked up the Kenyan accent and I tried it and it was working. So I just went with it. And then when I got on set, I told Chad, I remember saying this to Chad, to Husky, you know, I'm doing the African accent, right? He said, yeah, well, let's hear it. So I did it. He said, sounds great. We just went with it. <laughs> Love yeah. That. Is there a difference, speaking of that character, in living in a character for a franchise in film rather than living in a character for a series? Wow, that's a good question. You know, I mean, John Wick's the only franchise I've been a part of. So I guess Angel has fallen, but, you know, it came in at the end. It's a little similar in that you pick a character up, then you put it down, and then you come back to it a year later or two years later, and you have to find it again. You mm -hmm. have to find the accent again. I have to find his attitude, how he moved, because he's so taciturn and reserved. But at the same time, he has so much power as a being, but part of his job is to pretend he doesn't. Do you know what I mean? Which is very different from other characters that I played, which are overt alpha males of the cops that I played. So in that regard, it's similar. Cause I, and I remember, what well, Irving was interesting because when I first started Bosch, I actually had a little difficult time finding his accent, finding how he speaks. But I, I think I remember coming back second season and feeling like I had to find him all over. So in that regard, it's very similar. I wanted to jump backwards, actually, to Tennessee, which was a movie you did with Mariah Carey. Wow. Tennessee was also done with Ethan Peck, yes. who I was speaking with him this week. And he says, you might not remember, but I should ask you about the line replacement. It makes your tongue hard thinking about it, doesn't it? And he said there might be a story there. Oh, yes. Wow, man, what a memory he's got. He was on the receiving end of that monologue. <laughs> 
So I played Mariah Carey's husband in that. And I think it's a state trooper who's also a psychopath and a viciously abusive man. And so she meets these boys in a bar and brings them home because they need a place to stay. I don't even realize they're there. Mm -hmm. And then she says something I don't like because I'm back playing cards, drinking with my boys. And I threaten her. So I've got her by the throat and she's up against the wall. And then she's like, we're not alone. We got company. I said, what? And so I peek around the corner. I see these two white boys sitting on my couch. So I go out there and I sit in between them and I ask them if they think my wife's attractive. And at one point I say something lascivious. And I said, makes your dick hard. Just thinking about it, don't it? And we needed for TV a PG version. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so that was the PG version. That was the line they came up with. <laughs> I kid you not. That was the for TV version. It makes your tongue hard just thinking about it. Don't. Wow. Oh, that's that's certainly something. Ethan was great in that movie. He was great in it. Yeah, he said he absolutely loved working with you. Yeah. That was a little bit of a deviation. I don't want to keep asking the same question of like, how do you create different characters within the same archetype? But I know you've been cast a lot as the authoritative figure. But that's actually a great question. And it's not a question that I really get. <laughs> At least not asked that intelligently or nuanced. So one of the interesting things for me about the difference between particularly Daniels and Irving is just being so much older and looking so much different, you know, I've gained a lot of weight since then. Daniels was essentially, his ambition in terms of rank was driven a lot by his relationship with his wife. This is a gross analogy, but it was a bit of a Macbeth, Lady Macbeth type of situation. Hmm. Whereas Daniels really just loved the job. You know what I mean? He just wanted to do good police work. The thing about Broyles is that Broyles is essentially a soldier doing a cop's job, but his mentality is that of a soldier. Irving is the quintessential politician. He loves power. Do you know what I mean? And he loves the structures of power. So in that regard, he's very, very different in, in terms of his personality from Daniels. And that was the thing that I had to find. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. Playing roles where you've covered similar territory, do you find that you still have a fire in your belly about it? Or does it become a job that you're still love, obviously, but comfortable in? You know, Broyles and Irving were different experiences because Broyles came right on the heels of the wire. So on the one hand, I felt like I didn't really want to play the same character again. But on the other hand, it was J.J. Abrams' first big show after Lost. So we thought it was going to be the next loss, even though it didn't end up being that. And it was really the only role that I felt right for. You know what I mean? It was, and it also happened kind of organically because I'd just been cast on Lost. I was cast on Lost like literally like two weeks before I got wrapped in the wire. So I was a little bit in the family. And I was really excited about that character because it changed the beginning of the second season completely. But at the beginning of the series, there's a cold, calculating way that he, that he is. There's kind of a cold-blooded killer in him. 
that Daniels didn't have. And I like that. And I also like the fact that there was a mystery to his backstory, which the way the show was unfolding for a season, part of the unfolding of the mystery of his backstory was tied to the unfolding of the overarching plot that was set up at the beginning of the series that was moving through the first season, which unfortunately, which was supposed to move through the show, but unfortunately just kind of went away, second season. With Irving, quite frankly, when it first came up to me, I didn't want to do it. I threw a tantrum. The offer came in, and I blew my top. I, you know, I, I was ranting, raving to my wife. I got, God, God damn it, I told him I don't know more cops. So I go to call my agent. I see that I have a message. And for some reason, I decided to listen to the message first. And it was from my agent. And she said, Lance, you're getting an offer. Don't freak out. I need to talk to you about it first. <laughs> so I call her. So the thing I didn't know about Irving when I got the offer was I had no idea who Michael Collins was. So I didn't know that it was based on a series of books that were huge all over the world. Mm-hmm. The other thing I didn't know is that the offer came from Eric Overmeyer, who um, is the showrunner and the co-creator of the series. But Eric and I, in addition to being a famous playwright, Eric and I know each other from The Wire because he came on as a writer-producer fourth season. Mm-hmm. And so basically I had a conversation with Eric and he said, you know, we really need a great actor in this role. And I said, I'm hesitant because, you know, I just finished playing two top cops in a row. <laughs> and he says, oh, yeah, well, sorry. And I, <laughs> sorry, I can't get into that. Uh, he said, you know, we'll write, you know, however you want us to write it, you know, we'll write as big or small as you want. Michael Connolly, Michael's happy to talk to you. So I called Michael Connolly and uh, we talked and then I decided, okay. And another part of me saying okay was that first season, Irving was only supposed to be a recurring character. And at the time, it was never going to happen because the writer's agent didn't want to do it. But I was trying to get the writer who wrote, uh, this is skipping, went viral that I did on Funny or Die called Toys on Me. We watched yeah, it Yeah, we watched it last night. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. And I was really hot on trying to develop that as a television series, preferably for Adult Swim. So I figured, well, I got a year to do that while I'm doing this. Because the plan was for me to recur first season, have a big storyline, second season, become a series regular second season, and then figure it out from there. Well, you know, we shot the pilot in the fall of 2013. In May 2014, it gets announced in the trade that it got picked up for series. And the day that it was announced in the trades, I get a call from my agent. Last thing, I want to make your series regular first season. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> so what do I do now? Because on the one hand, you know, it's not like I got big bank theory money. You know, I mean, I still got to pay a mortgage. But on the other hand, it's like, am I doing something that's going to be like the nail in the coffin for my career? Mm. Artistically and professionally? You know what I mean? In terms of kind of doing the kinds of things that I wanted to do. And um, it took me long enough to make up my mind that the producers started to get pissed. But I decided to jump off the deep end and just go for it. And it has been great. A great role, part of a great show. And the other thing is, unbeknownst to me, between 2013, it was not only when we shot the pilot for Bosch, it's also when I shot Jen Wick. It's also when the guest got into Sundance. It's also the year that I did American Horror Story. So all these other things were happening in my career that were so different from that and that they continued to happen. It was just really fortunate. In terms of people seeing me a particular way, I'm not in danger of that anymore. So it's been a great ride. Not only that, but you've also been on Corporate, which is authoritative character, but completely different. We wanted to talk to you about your approach to comedy because your comedy characters are so dramatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except for Key and Peele. Was... I was going to say, we watched you in Key and Peele and that was actually just hilarious. When do we get to sing Over the Rainbow? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess those are the characters that I've, you know, I've been cast as. I'm sure it has something to do with the persona of my cop roles in the past. Um, corporate was one of those things where I didn't get it. So I have to take my hat off to my agent because when I read it, I just didn't get it. So I was like, 
oh, another asshole boss in a suit. I, I don't need that. And I said, Chris, I said, I don't usually do this, but what do you think? I want your opinion. She said, oh, I think you should do it. I said, why? She said, because I promise you, Lance, it's a different asshole boss in a suit. And the other thing is, they really capture the culture of fear that pervades corporate working culture. And it's truly been one of the highlights of my career. I can honestly say I'm as proud of corporate as I am of the wire. What an incredible group of people. I'm so fortunate. You know, my only regret about corporate is that it's Was it kind of a set that would break out into laughter all the time? People were cracking up all the time. I'm not saying, like, people would get through takes. Sometimes not. But most of them get, you know, they get through takes. Uh, and then they start laughing a lot at the end of them. But, you know, one of the things that was challenging for me in corporate was having to let go a little of thinking that I need better in terms of my character preparation. I remember Pat, Pat Bishop. When we're shooting the pilot, first of all, Pat is about 5'2", and he looks like he's 12. And so the first scene we shot for the pilot was my first entrance when you see me get out of bed and I'm working out and making my protein shake. And, you know, I like read, read this biography of this black billionaire and got all this preparation about who the guy is. And so they had stuff, a bunch of pills all over the counter. I'm like, well, he wouldn't do that. This guy's really fastidious. He wouldn't have this shit all over the counter like that. That's like, you know, but it'll be funny. I'm like, but it's a, it'll be fine. I'm like, what? This kid's telling me what my, my character is and he's walking away? What the fuck, man? These guys don't know what the fuck they're doing. I just got to get through this, get my paycheck, and die. <laughs> and it was funny. And it also, it shot one by so fast, you know what And now I know Pat's fucking genius. I mean, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, they all are, but Pat's really fucking smart. And the other thing is that, you know, except for Ann Dudek, who is her own phenomenon of just amazingly talented, everybody else is either from sketch comedy or stand-up comedians, particularly Adam Lustig. He would improvise, take after take after take for days and do different stuff and have you rolling in the aisles. I mean, I'm sorry that I keep using this word for the people in the show, but he's a fucking genius. I mean, it was just amazing. Would you improv? Did I or would I ever? <laughs> Did you in the show? Uh, not a lot. And you know, it's interesting. One of the things that Jake Wiseman, who plays Jake <laughs> on the show, he told me one of the things that they loved doing was figuring out how to give me a monologue that was as that language was as convoluted as possible to see what I would do with it. <laughs> Recently, One Night in Miami premiered at Venice and Toronto to absolutely rave reviews. It was the directorial debut of Regina King, which she's so phenomenal as an actress. I'm really curious to know how that translates to being a director and what it's like working with someone on their directorial debut. That's one of those rare instances where I didn't do it. Similar to Little Woods, I didn't do it for the role, I did it for the project. But also because, you know, I wanted to work with Regina. There's something about actors that direct, they just know how to talk to actors. Because a lot of directors, if they don't really understand acting, they don't understand how to talk in terms of motivation. If you're giving an acting, you know, I mean, unless something's just too fast or too soft or too loud, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Unless it's purely technical, you need to be able to speak that way. Yeah, and she's great at that. In the span of your career, can you think back to one of your favorite directions you've ever received? Wow, nobody's ever asked me that. I got to think about that one. See, the problem is that usually it's a bad direction that sticks out that you remember. <laughs> I was going to say that. I mean, I gave you a couple bad ones. And part of what makes me angry is that I took it. This is a director who, I'm not going to say his name, he was French. And this is a director that they loved on Fringe. And he disrespected me, like, from the first day. Mm. And he didn't even start treating me with respect until people started talking about The Wire, and then he put two and two together, because I don't think he'd even seen the show. But there's a scene where it's an alternate universe, 
And my character, he's been blackmailed by like the arch villain, which is played by Jared Harris. And my son had this rare disease that he had a cure for, but he'd only give it to me if I would betray my universe. You know what I mean? So I did something that caused the death of one of my people. So after the funeral, I come home. And when we play my wife, she asked me, Karen, <laughs> I remember I can't remember the characters. Anymore. She asked me if I'm okay. And how I played it when I came in was I came in, she looks at me and she says, are you okay? And I say, I'm fine. And I go and I start looking at the mail. And he says to me, Lance, what are you doing? It's not about the mail. We need to see your eyes. We need to see your eyes. Look at her. You want her to, I'm like, dude, you fucking idiot. I'm responsible for the murder of one of my people. The last thing I want is for the person who knows me better than anyone in the world to look in my eyes right now. I'm sorry. You know, I'm not playing the male. I'm playing avoiding her eyes, you dipshit. It's like you're looking for melodrama rather than what makes sense psychologically for the character in the moment, which is just stupid. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and also, the other thing was, he would love giving me this note. He needs more, he needs more intensity. He needs more, which really meant I need to see you doing something because I can't see what you're doing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, it's because you're a fucking idiot. It'll be there on the screen. That reminds me of a great Keanu Reeves quote. I was talking to Chad Stahowski, and we were in the lobby of the Continental. It was in between takes after walk and talk that I had with Ian McShane. And somehow we got on the subject of Keanu. And he said that when they first started working together, Keanu said, when you watch the dailies, make sure you, you're going to have to watch it on a big screen. You can't watch it on a small screen. Because if you watch it on a small screen, it's going to look like I'm not doing anything. But I'm actually doing a lot. I love that guy. He's so great. Wow. Isn't he magical? I mean, his energy. And it's not just his skills and artistry. It's also like his humanity. Yeah, he's like a different being. Yeah, he's extraordinary. I want to quickly ask, because I'm just personally really curious, because I'm a podcaster. You're in a series, a podcast called Dust Chrysalis? Yes. I'd love to hear about the process of acting in a podcast. I know you've done voice acting for video games and all of that, but is it different doing something for a podcast? So for me, voice acting is different. It tends to be different from acting on camera because you don't have your face. <laughs> you, know, you, you can't use your face and your body to communicate anything. And the other thing is you don't tend to memorize the lines. and Often you don't act with the other people. So you have to rely a lot on the director. You know, when, when film and television, usually my rule of thumb is unless you see something egregious, just stay out of my way because I know what I'm doing. Directors, but with voice acting, it's like, what do you got? What do you want me to do? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I really found that because I've done so much voiceover work for the video game Destiny. I definitely found out with Destiny because often I'd have lines that I wouldn't have any context for. But even with dramatic things, you don't always know when something's communicating, or well, you think something's communicating uh, and it's not. I can't wait to listen. I'm very excited to hear that show. Did you enjoy working on a domestics? Because it was a lot of fun for me. It was so much fun to, once again, to be able to play the kind of character that I don't get to play. I had a great time. There was one <laughs> there was one argument I had with the director that I lost that I shouldn't have. With Mike? Mike was so sweet and docile. Docile was definitely not a word I would miss for Mike. <laughs> but, but by the same token, I loved working with Mike. Yeah, like I said, there was only one scene where we just disagreed. And I lost that argument and I shouldn't have. When Jenny asked you about the question of, you know, what's a direction that you 
have gotten that you've loved. And it's definitely been from Mike, which was just, just go further and like literally fuck him up. <laughs> it was a blast to work on domestics. I like that you say he was a character you didn't get to play much. You mean the sweet, kind, generous family man who's a cannibal? Yeah, I'd, I'd assume. <laughs> Both of those things. You know, a guy who's sweet and just laughs and like mm-hmm. dances with his wife and makes goofy jokes with his son. And also who says, you know what? If you say anything right now, I will fucking gut you and feed you to my wife and children. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty close to the line I say. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get to play catches to do that either. <laughs> I want to wrap up with my favorite closing question. What does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling? Wow. What a question to ask when we don't have a lot of time. Yeah, that's deep. When I feel like I get it right, both in my performance and with the material that I'm working on, I feel that I'm doing something important. I feel it's important to feel that way for two reasons. Number one, I just feel like it's, it's kind of a fundamental human need to feel that, you know, what you do matters. But the other thing is that one of the things that makes human beings unique as beings is language. And so everything about how we relate to our reality is a story. So the kinds of stories matter. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. There was a woman very close to my wife who told her the story of when her son was about six years old. He was the younger of her two boys, and they were in a McDonald's. And he'd never really met any black people before. There was a black guy in a McDonald's. And she said he was mortified because he walked up to the guy. He said, hey, are you a bad guy? Because his only orientation to black people is what he'd seen on television. Mm. Oh, God. So, you know, to me, there's no such thing as just entertainment. All the stories we tell matter because they shape our values and they shape our standards of beauty. They shape how we relate to each other. Lance Reddick, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And Dana, as always, thank you for joining as well. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. So thank you, Lance. Thank you. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Coe Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis with guest co-host Dana Gurrier and guest Lance Reddick. Co-produced and edited by Jay Whiting. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted stuck at home. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Mm-hmm.